Welcome to the Digital Forester Podcast, where we talk to foresters about how they are using digital technologies in their day-to-day forestry work. Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome to the Digital Forester Podcast. Today, I am joined by Rolf Schmidt. He's the co-founder and co-CEO of Collective Crunch. Rolf, how are you doing today? Very well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for Very well, very well. Thanks for joining us. And it begs a question I always ask, where are you joining us from? Yeah, so usually I'm based in Germany, but I'm actually calling in from uh, from Finland. We have a Finnish-German uh, company, and I'm in Espo, which is outside of Helsinki. Very so cool, just, very uh, cool. Hijacking my co-founder. Yeah, yeah. Well, absolutely. So when I when I look at this and and your background, I was like, uh, you know, us North Americans have boring backgrounds. You have like the cool office. So for our listeners who can't see on the video, there's a cool sofa <laughs> L-shaped, a big TV, an electric guitar, of course, the mandatory whiteboards per se, but it looks like an awesome space to, to, to co-create there. So thinking of uh, your role, I, I always ask as well, people are used to this in this podcast, tell me about your journey into forestry and then we'll deep dive into the who Collective Crunch is, you know, how the things you, the cool things you're doing, honestly, but maybe to start us off, tell us how you, how you got into this forestry uh, space in general. Yeah. So a um, long time ago, 2015, 16 or so, um, co-founders, was, we ended up in Munich having dinner and uh, we were discussing things to do more exciting than the jobs that we had at the time. And the idea came up, what if you, what if you combined climate data with um, business processes? You know, the climate is changing, it's having a big impact and so forth. And that was sort of the, the initial, wow, this could work. And we then thought of going into sort of something like energy, you know, energy markets, you know, wind farms and things like that. We have a small product um, still running on that. We did something in logistics, but when we got to forestry and we're not foresters, when we got to forestry, we realized, one, this is a, an industry that's at, at an early stage of digitalization, which is exciting. And the other thing, the forestry industry, if you look at forest inventories, it's inherently statistics. So it's ideal for machine learning, data science, those kind of things, because it's all based on modeling nature with statistics. And then, you know, taking more powerful statistics, machine learning, that could work. And so that's kind of what set us into forestry. And of course, it's a it's it's a uh, one. It's a it's a it's a fascinating topic. It's a topic where you know modeling nature is incredibly complex, but it's also fun. It's beautiful. I <laughs> mean, you look at your background. It's just it's just an exciting thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So for our, our listeners, I have my virtual background of a, a cottage uh, uh, out here in uh, the, uh, the just west of Ottawa here. It's I'm trying to we're not quite there yet, but I'm trying to mentally prepare myself by saying we're almost in the in the summertime. So I, I'm curious. I love that story because sometimes the best ideas come from dinner or even maybe at the bar. There's often pens napkins often there's no paper around um so tell me about these people like these were people you knew beforehand you had history you kind of yep. knew each other obviously entrepreneurial nature I, I love when you say you know we're we're not quite happy with our day jobs so we're we're, we're looking at other ideas and and that's often that initial spark um but thinking of that it's like was that really as you said it was just one of those moments in time where now you look mm-hmm. back and go like that was the genesis of collective crunch it, it was kind of the genesis, and we're three co-founders. Um, Christoph is Austrian, living in Berlin. Um, I'm, I'm German, living in Munich. Jarko lives in Finland. 
And we've been debating for some time, you know, what to do together. And these guys, I'm an engineer by education, but these guys are more technical than I am. So we've been discussing for a while and they'd come with ideas and I just quietly sit there and think like, I'm not really understanding it. And so you're kind of saying, if I don't understand it, what are we gonna do about this? But that was the moment when it sort of came together. Um, Christoph is very, very deep in business intelligence, which then kind of merged into, into data science and, and, and sort of more complex um, and powerful tools. Yarko has a deep product background. He ran really, really, he built and ran really um, complex um, software solutions and, and, and things like that. And I have a business development background. I, I worked uh, and, and worked with global teams, ran global teams and things like that. And so it's not sort of, you know, it's not intended to be disrespectful to who we were working at the time, but we've been basically thinking it would be cool to do something together. And, and a crucial thing when you do a startup, I think, is you need to think about your skills you bring together. And, um, and, and we have actually three fairly different mindsets. These guys are a lot calmer than I am, so they count me down a little bit. And there's some, some funny personal dynamics there as well. Yeah, well, that's amazing. And as you know, in the startup world, awesome. You know, what is it? You need the hustler, you need the hacker, and you need the the money guy per se. Right. The, the the three right. stools, uh, whether that holds or not, we'll see. But so yeah. so very cool. So you're the co-founder, co-CEO. So maybe for our listeners, again, uh, very cool. You're in Europe. You know, different people in different countries, and you're calling in. We're do. I'm in Canada. We're doing this video, this audio call, as if uh, we're side by side. Amazing how what technology can do today. Um, but introduce us to Collective Crunch. I myself, I'm dying to learn more. As I said, I do, I'm not as familiar with uh, what you guys do, and I know there's different uh, lenses of it. But take a moment to introduce uh, the world to Collective Crunch. Sure. So we take any any amount of data, put it into GIS system, and then model it with machine learning. And if you think of, you know, the ways, the, the methods that are being used in forestry to model forest inventories, to make decisions in the, in, in the broadest sense possible, there's a couple of methods that are around, the sampling around. Um, in Northern Europe, actually a lot of LIDAR flying is being done, some of it public. Um, in other parts of the world, you'll have some private LIDAR flying going on. Um, you have, of course, satellite imagery and, and, and satellite data more broadly. And all of these methods have advantages and disadvantages. <clears throat> and what we've found quite often is you have companies that offer their skill set, be it LIDAR and just LIDAR, and drill, drill really deep into that, which gives you all the benefits of LIDAR, but also, unfortunately, all the aspects of LIDAR that are maybe not, not that great. And so we are not a specific, we don't have a specific focus on any, any method. Basically, it's you know, any data set will take and we model based on that. So we've got you know, layers upon layers. Our, our analytics um, solutions got 150 layers or so. Wow. Not all levels are, layers are equally important, but what I, want to what I want to emphasize here is we integrate anything really. And, and sort of this thing, we scale it probably on a, on, a, on a level that is at the moment in forestry unprecedented. So we have 18 million hectares, um, which is sort of, you know, 45, 40 million acres roundabout uh, covered in the system today. Yeah, wow. forest wow. inventory, um, species, um, maturity, dimension, classifications, all the things you need to make forest management decisions, all of the things you make harvesting decisions, um, reporting and those kind of things. 
Yeah, very, very cool. And, and so uh, at the start, you mentioned, you know, none of you are foresters by training, but obviously working in forestry and space. And so when you describe what Collective Crunch does role, was there challenges in terms of getting, you know, the four, you're laughing because you, you know where I'm taking you. Uh, mm -hmm. What were some of those challenges in terms of uh, messaging this and explaining to it? Because again, uh, there's a lot there, like, even though you described it so eloquently, um, you know, for our technical listeners, I'm sure they're already like, oh my, there's this and that and that, that play versus some of our general users might say, oh, that sounded great, but the te technical sophistication maybe not be fully appreciated. But what was your experience uh, early on? Because I, I think, uh, was it 2017 you guys are 2017, 2018, we started on the forestry thing in earnest. I think the, the, the kind of the thing you build from that kind of gives you energy and momentum is there's a lot of excitement around AI. You know, you say AI, it's a bit like blockchain. You know, you use the word and everybody's going to say, you know, oh, oh yeah, really? Um, but then it's actually really hard. So, you know, Elon Musk generated over exuberance about what AI can do is, is with us. It's a fact in life. There's some good in that because it brings people to listen to you. But the reality that then hits you is it's actually really hard to do. I remember actually um, our lead data science at the time, he's, he's not with us, he, he went to another company at some stage. We were three quarters into the first real modeling exercise. And actually in the meeting, he says, I'm not sure it can be done. <laughs> so, so, yeah. that stage, a little bit of sweat on your forehead now, right? Like, yeah, oh boy. Really taken aback slightly. Um, but I mean, you then, I mean, you need to listen to engineers, right? Otherwise you're doomed. I mean, I, I firmly believe that. And so we, we thought it through again from first principles and we said, you know, there's the information is there from an inf information perspective. It's on the border, but it should be doable. And, and actually three months later, we've done it as a proof of concept of a million hectare, bit under a million hectare um, area in Finland. And so it's doable, but it was definitely on the threshold of what, what's practically doable. And an aspect of it is um, what, what happens in, in the Nordics is they use um, cut to measure harvesters. Yeah. These, these things grab the tree, cut the tree, and when they rebranch the tree, they measure very accurately. So error rate of one, 2%. And that's the best source to calibrate such complex models like we have it. But that information was only just becoming available. So it was always clear, the more of that becomes available, the better the models will be and so forth. And so we were kind of, we were pretty, pretty clear we could get there. It's more a question of when, you know, is there enough data to drive the models to the accuracy we needed? And, and another aspect is um, you, you don't sell something to the Nordic forestry industry um, faking it while you're making it or you know, being right. unclear about your accuracy. This is a very, very solid industry. And Absolutely. so we went through some serious rigor about what's the accuracy, what's working, what's not working. And, and that was early on, that was a pretty significant challenge because we would go nowhere if we would not beat the models they had at that time. Yeah, absolutely. And and I, I I can relate. I'm sure it's like, Rolf, it's like, but this is how we've always done it. Right. Right. So yeah, again, <laughs> you're laughing. Fair enough. I'm not blaming anybody. Yeah. Right? You, know, you need yeah. to serve the customers. Yeah. Yeah. But meanwhile, you know, it's like, but I have a better way of doing this. That's faster, mm -hmm. is more cost effective and is more mm -hmm. accurate and precise. But that's part of the journey. So I, I want to address maybe uh, uh, the elephant question in the room is often when we think about machine learning and you're right with AI 
uh, blockchain, you know, if I'm baking a cake with the kids, I'll be like, oh, did you add some AI into that, you know, cake? And they're like, what? I'm like, yeah, yeah, just keep going. You know, we just, everyone uses it uh, in general, general ways, uh, may, often maybe inappropriately. But one of the things with machine learning or AI in general is it's a black box. And so a lot of people, and I suspect you probably bumped into this as you're trying to do that extension or that knowledge transfer, that forced or that, that forced biometrician says, yeah, but Rolf, it's like, how did it get to this output? It's like, you need to be able to explain it to me. You can't tell me it's a black box. Do you see that really as a problem or do you think that's an objection or excuse for people to resist the change mm -hmm. or, or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think the thing that helps in that is that, you know, as I said earlier, foresters are actually at least the forest inventory people in forestry they're, they're they know their statistics so you know they have a really good basis of understanding sort of what what happens in principle and you need to explain to some degree what it is you're doing but of course you need to be also mindful of your intellectual property and things like that so overall we've been trying to steer that debate towards what's the outcome of the black box? What are you getting here? And really focusing on the verification of that. And of course, in machine learning, there are you know, methods to prove the accuracy you know, and, and all of that exists. And, and to really focus on what's the outcome? What are we actually giving you? And you know, new customers coming in, we've just coming to the end of one, uh, of one pilot project, we go through that very rigorously. What is the what is what's the confidence interval? What is the accuracy of each and every parameter to make sure the customer has that? And and they are they're actually on the project level that we're dealing with. They're they're pretty clued up about statistics, and so in that sense, they don't know what the black box does as such, but they're very very clear about directionally what's happening inside there and particularly right. about what is the outcome that you get. And I think the outcome is the thing that, of course, we need to be very, very transparent. You know, we, we work scientifically on this and, and, and we're very, very open about the outcome. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Because I often joke for the, the people who drive, uh, you know, Elon's Tesla's, you know, who buy the full, the FSD, the full uh, self-driving, you don't sit there and go like, I need to understand how that black box right. drives the car. You just drive the car and you're excited and you're, and maybe it's because it's Elon's products. You just yeah. don't care. You trust it by default, which is probably a problem on its own. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's like, it's kind of funny when you really draw the criticisms, I shouldn't say criticisms, the, the concerns from the force industry or foresters on some mm -hmm. technology. Is it a function of just forcers historically are the hackers or the hustlers? They've done it all and, and understand the land base, the, the natural asset. And by default, they, they're just curious people and want to understand things. And it's frustrating when they it's something that you really need an engineering degree or some advanced data science degree to, to, to go from. So thinking of the tech stack, um, again, Digital Forester, technologies, you're, you're a vendor, you've got cool technology, maybe walk us or walk me through. I'm, I'm equally curious, uh, you know, the products I see online around Linda Force, Linda Planet, Linda Metrics. And then I said, you know what, instead of reading this, I'm just gonna ask Rolf while we're on the call, sure. to give me the, the crash course on yep. what each one is and what they're for. Yep, uh, so three things are there. Um, Linda, Linda um, Metrics is basically for your own forests, um, you, you get all the transparency, all your parameters, you know, what's the wood mass, what is the species mix, what's the maturity, all of that to manage your own forest better. And that's sort of how we got into this market. And what, what the, 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 the Nordic forest industry was telling us, you know, if you could do this better, it would help us. And that's Linda Metrics. It's for your own forest, any parameter that you could think of, we can effectively 
model or if it's something really far out, then try to model and have a conversation about. And while that was happening, the, the large customers were saying, but we're also one, occasionally buying forest and we're also buying raw material that isn't in our own land. So we'd like to have a model that isn't just our land, but also the lands around and, and elsewhere. And that is in a scout because scouting is the term that's quite often used for, you know, scouting for something specific. You know, if you have a big mill, you're scouting for the right kind of material, raw material to buy. So that's Linda Scout, you're outside of your own area. And the third one, which I really want to emphasize as, as far as, as uh, we make it out, is Linda Planet. And so there is, you know, the, the, the climate climate is changing. Um, it's it's a significant issue that we're facing, and forestry is a, can be a significant part of the solution. And so, you know, forests are the cheapest and most efficient way of getting CO two back out of the atmosphere. So, Linda Planet is intended for projects that uh, that are sustainability projects, that are climate projects, to have the metrics to track. The development of your your wood mass, which equates into the CO2 that you've sequestered. So that's that's a big tool. But I have to say that this whole climate carbon side of of you know forestry is less digitalized than the rest. I mean, these big companies have been around for a long time. They understand what Linda Metrics is fine. They look through the accuracy, great. They understand what Scout is for. They look through the accuracy, great. But when you go to the carbon industry, then it is much more still sampling, manual. You know, we want a forester to see this before we believe it. Admittedly, there's a lot of greenwashing going on in that part of the, mm -hmm. in, that, in that sector, if you like. And we're trying with Linda Planet to bring rigor to that and a numbers-based, science-based information to that with a very, very clear articulated and understood confidence interval because the more narrow your confidence interval is, the basically the better your business plan is. Right, right. So definitely, I feel like you're, Ralph, you're touching on the ESG a little bit, its influence driving a bit of climate tech. And, and we've seen, uh, you know, even recently some investments into different companies and their series A and B and, and pushing that forward. And then I like your term, the greenwashing, you know, the, the magic there. But when you say that the large company, like a lot of these tier ones, these large enterprises are well established and it may not just be the forestry company, right? It could be a tier one elsewhere in other sectors looking to, to buy carbon credits, but what? What, what, what do you feel like, so obviously I agree, there's a push in climate tech and it's maybe changing the narrative or the discussion around force from their traditional you know, wood products and whatnot and, and even bio products per se into a different climate tech space. Uh, but do you feel like the, the forestry world is ready for that? Uh, do you believe the, the people around that ecosystem are, are really ready and, and or, or, or already see the ups and the downs, I guess, because again, when you talk about Linda metrics, Linda scouts, like we'll get in, we'll deep dive into that tech a little bit uh, more. But when we go to that planet side, like this is a big issue and, and there's a lot of players out there. We also know from our experiences, not all players are equal. There's different stories that are being told, some fully transparent, others maybe um, not completely. But where do you see some of those challenges, I guess, and opportunities in that that space for, for forestry and foresters in the climate tech space? Yeah. Um yeah, so I think there, there is a big driver behind all of this, which is 
um, McKinsey and others have projected that this market will grow, I think, 15-fold the next nine years. And then the number for 20, 30 years out, 25 years out is 100. Don't quote me on exact numbers, but there's going to be very significant growth in this. That's sort of carbon trading as a, as a whole. There's a, you can argue a case that forestry will play a very significant role in that. So you can actually, you could actually project higher growth rates still. And I think what is daunting on, on the external, you know, tier one players like, you know, an airline energy company, the tech companies, what's daunting on them as well as the forestry industry is there aren't enough foresters to measure this thing by hand. There are right. just not. And so there is definitely some customers that are that we're engaged with that are saying, and by the way, there's a backlog. You know, we need to do an audit, but we can't find, you know, the forester to do the work. And you know, it's sort of the whole Steve Jobs and the bicycle of the mind and so forth. I mean, we have have better tools if we want to, you know, get to that stage. And if there is going to be that kind of growth, which scientifically we, we need, we need that kind of growth of, you know, of, of either reducing emissions or taking, you know, CO2 back of the atmosphere, out of the atmosphere. If you want to have that kind of growth, the current process will not hold. It's, it's just completely impossible. You know, you, there are not that many people that study forestry anymore. So it's actually it's the, the, the commercial companies, they, they're saying, we're finding it hard to keep staffing levels. And now you've got this huge growth thing in, in part forestry, where the forest is going to come from. And so our argument is, well, you don't need all that many foresters. You know, you, you certainly don't make things, you're not making them redundant, which is kind of socially a good thing, but we need to get better at this. And, and that's sort of the point that we're making here. Yeah, very cool. Very cool. Yeah. And I, I suspect you have tiptoed around the, the question of, well, are you suggesting, Rolf, we get rid of boots on the ground, right? Again, you're laughing because I know you've heard it uh, before and obviously yep. we're not, as opposed to maybe those boots are doing something different uh, than the traditional job. And it's a non-trivial thing, right? I mean, I wouldn't want somebody to walk into this office and say, well, you're not going to, you're not needed anymore, right? So it's, 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 a, it's a question that's there. But what we do see um, is, you know, bark beetle, climate change has a significant impact on forests. And so our story in this, and it's not just a headline story to sort of mark, to, to market it away, if you like. It, our really sort of our focus in this is we take away the routine because it's, it's hard enough to model just the forest inventory it, we can't model the changes that are going on there and you know bark beetles and, and and other sort of damages heat damages we have you know fire is, is is another one you can do some risk modeling around that but there is a lot that the forester can do other than you know measure trees on a regular basis so um i am honestly not aware of any even wildest out intention of you know getting rid of boots at the moment i have not heard of that at all i think it's about you know we're not keeping stuffing levels up anyways and there's a lot of routine why don't we take away the routine and let people focus on the value stuff at least in forestry i think that's very much as far as i can look out that that's going to be um the the sort of context of of, of it
For sure, for sure. Great points. And, and I do laugh where a lot of forcers get worried or hung up on that questions. And then later on, sure. when you talk with our companies, they're exploring truck platooning because there's a labor shortage. And yet that's okay. There's not concerns about the automation that might be bringing into there, but maybe it's just closer to their heart. So very cool. So I wanted to dive into maybe the, the Linda metrics and the Linda scout just from the, again, digital forester podcast is about technology. I know you mentioned, you know, 150 scales and that, you know, the tens of million hectares. So the forties million acres type of thing. And you can tell I'm not good at doing that hectare to acre conversion <laughs> live, but we just kind of do around two, two, two and a half type of thing for our, yeah. our other listeners, but maybe walk us through again not looking for you know the confidential details of anything um but often we've had a lot of podcasts where lidar is like the hot topic button um so is this something like uh roll from collective crunch you must have airborne lidar or terrestrial lidar or is it more it's an option and if you have it great but we have secret sauce that we can still do what we need to do without that what are your thoughts on lidar and and how it's affected uh, the force industry um a lidar is a great tool absolutely i mean um in terms of tree heights and such, it, it sort of does it on a, on a significant scale. So it's, it's fantastic data to have, no doubt about it. Um, generally, our experience is that LIDAR is every, done every couple of years, in, in the widest sense, because it's quite expensive. And so we are working in some, in some uh, sort of, you know, countries' accounts where, where LIDAR isn't stopped, it will just continue. It's great data points, and we model very accurately between them. Um, in other cases, people want to maybe do LIDAR only in specific um, cases and want to sort of, because it's expensive, um, only do it um, on an as-needed basis in, in, in very specific uh, points. So the routine LIDAR they want to get, um, get out of, and, and basically we help them with that. But overall, I think the question, the point is, most of the companies have some sort of LIDAR inventory. They might do sampling and, and, and really heavy sampling. We've seen some of that. They might do heavy LIDAR um, HBR data. So the data coming out of harvesters, which is something that the Nordics do. And in my view, Latin America should do a lot more of. Those are the sort of sources around. And we are well prepared to go into any of these scenarios and take the historical data that the customer has um, and, and enrich it with all the data sources that we have to get to a better result. One is in enriching it, um, you, you have an advantage of potentially getting better. Um, you, the AI doesn't have the human, um, the human bias that comes with uh, sampling. Um, you, if it's LiDAR, you enrich it with optical and you can work a little bit more around species, which LiDAR is not particularly good at. And so basically whatever the situation is, our, our um, our strategy is to take whatever historical forest inventories the customers work with, enrich the data, model it, and, and see if we can come to something better. And so far in every, you know, we've got customers across uh, Northern Europe, we've done projects in Central America, we've done in Spain, you know, give it some time, give it some effort and we get better. Mainly right, because sure. we combine data sources and you don't have the human bias. That's, uh, that's those are. Yeah, so 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 thanks, Rob, for that. So I guess thinking of of, of some of our, our digital Forster listeners, I'm I'm coming to Collective Crunch. That all sounds great. I listen to Rolf on the the podcast. What uh, to get started? What are those things that 
they need to bring? And then do you, I'll, I'll let you answer that first. And then I, I'm curious to take that question and then extend it beyond um, Scandinavia or the Nordic countries, because as you know, uh, in that neck of the woods, right, we've got 3G, we, we've got coverage, 90% coverage. You come to Canada, I always joke, it's like we have more 0G coverage than, than coverage in general. Um, so, so I'm curious to know your, your thoughts on, on that. What, what, what does someone have to bring to the table yep. just to get going with you? Yeah. So basically we're saying, let's look at what your forest inventory is based on today and then take it from there, we enrich it. And that can be in Central South America. It can be heavy sampling. It can be heavy, heavy LIDAR. Um, and we take it from there. In the Nordics, um, these harvester data, HDR data is sort of big and, and we've built the tools to handle it. So we're basically saying to Latin America, why don't you start using those data sets? Because you've got the modern harvesters, you've got it all there, you just need to take the data out. And what then happens in an account, if there is sort of significant interest, we're still in the phase of development where we're trying to focus on early adopters. You know, that's just the, the nature of the game. And, you know, there's an interest in AI, but there's also, and I think understandably, there is this, I want to see it before I really commit. And so what we offer there is then a pilot, we work around the pricing, we face a little bit of risk there and, and are willing to take a little bit of risk there to basically sort of take a usually six to eight weeks, take the data in, enrich the data, use our models, get to a good point. And when you then go through the accuracy, this is what it exactly is. And you answer all the questions around that. Then, then you have the discussion of, okay, we're now at a position where we consider going, going commercial, going into full application in the processes that we have. So that's sort of, that's sort of the way that, that um, onboarding of a customer would work. Very cool. Yeah, that's that's pretty fast turnaround, six to eight weeks, right, from when you get the data and yep. and whatnot. I, I chuckle inside when you say, uh, you know, they've got to do a pilot. It's kind of funny, in my observation, uh, you know, no one wants to be the first, but they also don't want to be the last in forestry. And it's almost like this tidal wave, right? You get the early adopters, the lighthouse accounts, and then suddenly it's like, Rolf, it's like, you know, they're doing it with you. It's like, well, I want in. And it's like this domino yeah. effect. And fortunately, unfortunately, that seems to be the name of the game in, yeah. in, in forestry. So one, I just wanted to pause because again, I'm always conscious of our listeners that some are coming from different spaces. Sure. Um, some don't even know forestry. I always joke about my sister, but you mentioned the HPR data. So maybe pause for a moment and, and introduce our listeners. You know, obviously we're going to the Stanford D side of side, but maybe pause and, and educate or share with our listeners mm -hmm. when you say HPR, what does that really mean yep. to you and for the layperson? Why is this so significant? Yep. Um, the, the HPR harvester data is, is very, very accurate. And it is something that, you know, if you use those kind of harvesters, it is basically, it, it's, it's there. You just need to take it out of the harvester, which can be non-trivial. We talked about, you know, mobile coverage. And um, the harvester information is, is being used in the Nordic for a couple of things. One is... Um, you, you pay on that basis. So you basically get a measurement, measurement report out of the harvester and that's the basis for, okay, there's a supplier and a purchaser and that's the basis of what's been going to be paid. And that's very accurate. And at this, but, but you can also use it for modeling to get the better results. So we're saying to, to Latin America and customers, you know, you have the harvesters, you know, let's, let's try to use that. 
of course you need to overcome the connectivity, which is a significant problem in, in, in Brazil. I mean, I've, we've been told a couple of times now that um, th these harvesters might be outside of mobile coverage, you know, 80% of their operational uh, use. But you don't need 100% of the harvesters if you know if that's too complicated. If you can, you know, a couple of them, and and if you just run run with a USB stick and and somebody you know takes it off, these harvesters are being serviced every now and then, of course. You know, maybe you just take it on at that time when the technician is at the harvester, and you take it off there. It doesn't have to be real time like it is in the Nordics, but if you get to the point to start doing it, then you know, you, you can derive a lot of benefits from the data. So that's sort of part of our argument. And the curious thing in, in Latin America, and I'm not a deep Latin American expert by any stretch, I'm not claiming that, but my understanding at the moment is that even the payment of the raw material is based on sampling. Now sampling, truth be told, we're talking easily about 10% error, uh, error rate. So we're talking to this person who's a, uh, is a landowner in Brazil and he explains and you know, it was something like 10 million cubic uh, meters per year. Yep. Now, why would you use a method that's got 10%, uh, easily a 10% error rate? And so if you think this through a bit further then we're hoping or we're, we're not just hoping, we're not sitting here hoping, but we're, we're trying to encourage a process where particularly Latin America, who are using these harvesters says, okay, let's make an effort to, to bring these data in and to make use of it in the widest sense, you know, get, get paid fairly um, and use the data for modeling. And, you know, harvester data on a big scale, you know, we've got millions of hectares of harvester data in the Nordics. So we've built internally the tools, the processes to handle them. And so we've now basically turned that around to say, well, dear Latin American customer, if you have a problem with handling it, we're more than happy to host your harvester data, but we're not going to solve the connectivity issue. You know, we're a startup in the Nordics. We can't do anything about mobile networks. And, you know, in Canada would be a similar argument. In, sure. That's something that, that needs to happen there, but it doesn't have to be 100% day one. So we're basically telling our customers, let's start somewhere, you know, and make use of this, this really, really important and, and extremely useful data set. Yeah, very cool. So I'm, I'm curious, just, uh, you know, from the Nordics to LATAM or, again, our listeners, Latin America, um, I'm assuming it's because in LATAM, like a lot of CTL with harvesters being used and maybe other jurisdictions around the world, uh, CTL is not, we, we've got feller bunchers that play in other areas that don't have the smart head. That's, that's, that's the thinking of going to LATAM. Okay, um, cool. Uh, so one of the things I, I'm really dying to know here is that, um, as you look at scaling things, um, I, there's always still this debate in terms of like, Rolf, it's like, I already have a data center, right? You talked about 150 layers. It's like, but I got a data center. I don't want to put it in your, your mm -hmm. data center in the cloud. I'm assuming it's in the cloud, but right. what are your thoughts or advice on that from when we think about the on-premise um, discussion versus the cloud? Do you think it's really an issue? Does it matter? Or what are your, what are your thoughts in general mm -hmm. about that space? Yeah. I mean, you have to listen to your customers and you will, you know, if you, if you, if you don't follow a route that they're broadly comfortable with, then you know, you're making a big mistake. Um, on, on one level and, and just sort of for, as, as a sort of a motivational thing, not to go into too deeply, but if you think of security, the, the, the cybersecurity aspect, 
then people, and I've met definitely forestry people who feel more secure if it's on their servers. But if you actually look at the security routines and so forth of a cloud application in, you know, be it an Amazon, be it Microsoft, versus you having a server somewhere in your own facilities, it's not a, not a clear cut thing, I mean, <laughs> at yeah. all. That server in your, you know, in, in, in your own facilities, is it, you know, the latest patches? Is it, is it really, you know, security wise up to date? I think another aspect of what you're bringing up is, is the right of use in data. And that is of course a very sensitive thing. You know, we, we, we respect sure. that and um, you need a level of trust to, to get to a point where, where people are sharing such data. And I hope with the Lighthouse customers and, and the credibility with customers that we've built, that we can take um, where we have the data sets from our customers to model better and enrich their data and so forth, that we can take that sort of level of trust in these references to go into new markets. Um, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but there is very constructive debates around that. So I hope it's not a, not a central issue. But it is something that I think it's a valid question. You know, if I, you know, if somebody came to me and says, "Can I have your bank data?" I would say no. <laughs> it's pretty simple. <laughs> so it's something to be mindful of, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Well, it's a great point you make. Often, it just comes down to the conversation and making sure people are understanding each other and working from the same same playing field. Um, so, typical before we go into maybe trends and technology, because again, I'm dying to know your view on the landscape there. I'm just curious maybe to come full circle. This started, you know, at dinner with a group of friends, colleagues, you know, looking back to 27, and you guys did a raise. I, I believe you guys did like a, a small several. C raise. Oh, several of them. Okay. All right. So I'm, I'm missing that. Where are you guys at now? You did a C, you've done a series A as well, or? Um, so basically the, the, the several, rounds that we did is that the European market, you go in smaller stages. So your valuation is a little bit more cautious than it might be in the US. So you're raising a little bit less to not be wiped out in dilution. You do a couple of rounds. So we've done five rounds, but some of them are particularly the early ones. They, they would be in a, in a North American context, they'd be laughably small. So we've right. done, you, we've done some fundraising. We've got, you know, really investors that are excited about the company and backing us and, and so forth. And Honestly, I forgot what your question was. <laughs> well, so I was going to say, like coming full circle, starting this journey and yep. looking back from 2021, I actually yep. had to pause and go, we are in 2021. Yep. 2021 and looking back to 2017, yep. Yep. are you, are you where you thought you would be or are you more like, wow, this is taking way longer. It's more mm -hmm. harder. And if so, is it for the reasons maybe you anticipated? I'm just curious to know, like, mm -hmm. you know, that time yeah, warp, like, yep. like, where are you at? Are you, are you at, are you surprised on where you are or? Or you're right on track. This is exactly what we thought. Uh, I'll I'll have to make this one up because I don't have the time to think about it. You know, you're <laughs> quite, quite busy when when you when you you know everybody of us is really busy building this beast. Um, but I think it, applying to any startup that that you speak to, I could imagine that there's a sort of a broad consensus. I thought this was faster. I thought this was not as hard as it turned out to be. <laughs> it's definitely that. Yeah. But broadly. Um, yeah, my family was kind of saying, what are you doing back way back when 2017? I said, we're going to do this and so forth. And, and I told my son, who was something like 12 around that time, you were debating it. I said, you know, you got to be, you, you got to know one thing, 90% of startups fail. And he looked yeah. at me like completely pale. And of course, they don't fail catastrophic. Probably half of them never get off the ground as such. 
but still, you know, not failing is almost success at startups. I mean, you don't want to be a zombie company where everything is miserable, yeah. but it, it takes longer than you think. And sure. you know, the, 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 the sheer solving the technical problem takes longer than you think. The customers coming on board takes longer than you think. We've got, we've got customers that we thought they're going to sign next week at three months. And for reasons that are completely understandable. So <laughs> unfortunately, it rarely ever is faster than you think. I mean, that, that really that almost never happens. It always takes longer. I think you have to have the patience. Actually, that conversation with my son, he was kind of flippant, why don't you do it? And I said, it's got to be five to 10 years of my life. <laughs> really yeah. hard work. And, but the good news about it is it's enjoyable work. It's something you, you, you basically you're creating your own thing and, and you have a pretty strong influence in what's going on. So sure. it's, it's definitely exciting. But these things take longer. I mean, I, maybe not if you're Facebook, but almost anything else, if you speak to a founder, I think they will say, I thought this was faster. I thought this was not as yeah. hard as it is. Yeah, but at the end of the day, I'm sure your family looks at you. You've got the bounce and the step each day. You're smiling. You're enjoying yeah, yeah, sure. what you're I'm, doing, I'm right? I'm hugely enjoying it. I'm hugely yeah. enjoying it. For yeah. sure, for sure. So traditional, as, as a tradition with this podcast, we often challenge our, our, our folks, who our guests, to walk us through what a, a one-year, three-year, 10-year looks. You know, you touched on blockchain a little bit. It's a bit of the buzzword, and or whether it's Web3 or crypto. And again, you know, crypto is like yeah. AI, right? You just say it, everyone gets in a frenzy for all sorts of different yeah. reasons. Yeah. But when we think about, I'm, I'm curious to hear your views because again, you're not coming, you're not a trained forester. Um, you're coming as a technology company into the forestry space. And I'm sure you've scratched your head multiple times going like, oh my God, I can't believe this is how it's done and, and, and it's still being used. But as you look forward, what are some of those key technological trends that you're mm-hmm. keeping an eye on, on how it might influence Linda Planet, Linda mm-hmm. Scout and Linda Metrics? What are your thoughts on that? Yep, yep. Yeah, so the the thing that there's kind of two things that are kind of part of the same same coin, so two sides of the same coin. Um, sensors get better and better and better. They only get better. That's that's very very clear. So you know, if you think five or ten years ahead, then and you kind of factor improvements in resolution and and so forth, uh, and and you project that, then satellites, remote sensing, satellite-based remote sensing is, is on a path that is only going to make it a lot more interesting. No doubt about that in my mind. And there's very, very exciting things happening there that, um, that you know, see what's sort of being shot up in the next few, few years or even now. Um, very, very exciting stuff. And then there's this sort of drone thing, which you know, brings a completely <laughs> different thing. Yeah. Actually, satellites. Before I go to to the drones, you know, um, microsatellites, the stuff that's just you know, you know, a constellation thrown out <laughs> at the back of of a yeah, big. All, all the astronomers just, will be screaming, complaining, more dots in the sky. Some, yeah, yeah, sure. There's there's that too, and um, but very very exciting stuff there that that will really improve, and I think provide you know step changes in what what we'll be able to do in five years time, and and. And that will mean more automation, better, better analysis, and so forth. And then there's the drone thing, which I think some people get carried away. You know, the key question is how long can a drone that carries a lot of sensory equipment can stay in the air? And you get an answer that is sort of something under two hours. Well, that doesn't really scale all that hugely. Um, and so there is an interesting case there, and we've played, but we've actually acquired our own drone data um, last year. And 
it's it's very very interesting but where it is at the moment drones the way we look at drones is it's sort of for spot checks and things like that really okay. really interesting but if you you know cast your mind out the the drone side i don't think will will go as fast as the remote sensing sensory side because you're still talking about equipment you're talking about it you know being being you know, kept in the air and things like that but definitely exciting things going there in terms of broadly data acquisition that's sort of from a pure technical side and the thing that i'm as a business person i'm really excited about and what i think is going to be the real change is that at the moment you have the tier one forestry players that are actually pretty digitalized. They know what they're doing, they know where they're going, they understand what we have. But I think that will ripple through the market to the tier two, tier three, um, with standard products, um, sort of an easy access, standardized procedures and, and processes and so forth. There is some of that will answer questions that come, for example, out of the European Union, that um, basically wants to have a carbon budget countrywide, sort of for the entire continent on a per country basis. You, for that, you need data, you need intelligence and so forth. And at some stage that will probably change into um, a, maybe not a mandatory, but an encouragement to report your carbon budgets and things like that. And you need a lot more data acquisition to get to that point. And so there's one is the sort of need for it. And then there is this sort of huge improvement since um, since forever, basically, but particularly since the arrival of the iPhone smartphone, where, where sensors get smaller, much more powerful. And we see that really just on its trajectory and, and, and continuing. So there's going to be a lot sure. more stuff coming. Very cool. So yeah, on that slide. Yep, sorry. Yeah, you know, on the lines of remote sensing, I'm just curious. A lot of people ask me, it's like radar. What are, what are your thoughts on radar? There's there's more interferometric SAR, INSAR, IFSAR yeah. coming yeah. online. Is that something that excites you? Or yeah, yeah, oh, definitely, definitely. You know, we will take it, whatever it is. And and you have bits and pieces where the data sets you have don't give you the answer. And curiously, in some of these cases, radar does come into that. So you know, we're really sort of data integration, let's put it all into the system. So radar is something that we are really excited about. Um, there's things like, you know, if you have storm damage, there's cloud coverage, optical might not really help you. It might not help you for stretches of days or weeks. There's radar. And so hugely interesting, absolutely. I am actually not super cognizant on what the trajectory of radar is in, in the next couple of years, but it's definitely a data set we look at. For sure, for sure, absolutely. So, uh, blockchain. Any, any? I gotta ask because you're a tech guy, right? So yep. we gotta nerd out a little bit here. Uh, yep. Blockchain. What, what do you think on that? Is it coming to forestry? Chain of custody issues. What, what are you? What are your thoughts uh, on that? Yeah, it's going. I actually, I, I used the term earlier just as a buzz in terms of here as a buzzword. But of course, there is this this line of thought and this sort of endeavor of moving forest assets to tokenization and there is definitely a couple of uh, things that are happening in uh in in the carbon space if you like there's a couple of, sort of really interesting players some of them we're, we're engaged with um i th i can definitely see it coming but i wouldn't put a year on it because there are also some there's some some reason for so and some unanswered question. I don't want to say skepticism because we have to overcome our own customer skepticism. Um, but there's a couple of things that need answering. And in one of it is 
um, if you if you take the tokens and just put them out there and they become part of carbon trading, the bigger issue is actually does the forest that's represented by this token still exist? So it solves kind right. of it solves a problem, no doubt about it. But I think the bigger problem is elsewhere, which is does that forest still exist? Has it burned? Has it been cut and so forth? Which is why we're focusing on this space and not the blockchain space at this point in time, because that we think that's the harder problem. It's the more pressing problem to understand at scale what's going on in the forest. And we are definitely interested and we're sort of game planning it a little bit in terms of what's our route there. Do, is there going to be a dominant player that we attach into? You know, do we build an API? We're very big on APIs and, and try to really provide APIs into, you know, into, into QGIS, um, Ed3, and all these people. And, you know, is there sort of an API play to be had to, to dock into the future leading blockchain tokenization of forests? I'd love that. <laughs> I'm yeah. not sure that we would do that ourselves, but I'm, I'm pretty, confident, pretty convinced that give it three years or so, there would be something significant, significant there. But I think the question then is, what's the what's the underlying asset what's the quality of it because in carbon the greenwashing issues and so forth what we're seeing is and it's sort of the core of it there isn't all that much public carbon trading in the voluntary market going on at the moment most of it is direct so the big tier ones or even tier twos and so forth they go to their project managers and say can you please do this for us and when you're ready can you let us know what the what what the credits are and the reason they're going to the length of doing that directly is they don't trust the public trading system because mm -hmm. the underlying assets are not clear. And if somebody, and we hope it's us, gets to the point of, of verifying and at scale tracking the accuracy of the statement that's in the token, then it can really go to token. Then it can really go to public trading and I wouldn't say we don't mind because public trading, I think, is going to be pretty fragmented. There's a lot of players there already. In the tokenization blockchain side, it might just have an opportunity to get bigger scale faster. So it's a fascinating topic. Yeah, absolutely. We can we can we could spend an hour yeah, uh, talking about the metaverse <laughs> and crypto web three and all that Indeed. jazz, but but we don't have the time for that. Indeed. Um, Indeed. So so one of the things as as we're looking at at winding down, uh, Rolf, a, a great discussion. Uh, you and I, I, I already sense we can uh, uh, chat forever, and we'll we'll have to do that at some point in time. Indeed. I would re I would be remiss not to ask Linda Forrest, Linda Scout, Linda Planet. I'm gonna bet Linda is somebody's pet, cute, cuddly cat. I gotta ask, cause I know our listeners must, right, be, right. must be like, this Linda, who is this Linda person? It's, Isn't it's that actually, thing? so there's an acronym for it, which, you know, I barely mention, but I, I barely can remember and I won't repeat it here. Um, it, but the truth of the matter is a big customer of ours said, don't call this the Pro 2000, take a simple <laughs> name. And then Yarko said, my daughter's name is Linda. <laughs> so that's how it came about. Love it, love it. That's amazing. Yep. Sometimes it's as simple as, as that. So yep. I, I was close. Cuteness factor, 1 million, right, it, for sure. It, yeah. Yarko's daughter, but yeah. In, in, in the defense of, you know, all credit to the customer. I think we were on a path to call it something like, you know, like a German car would be called, you know, three digits. 
uh, numbers, a couple of letters, an S at the end. <laughs> we were yeah. definitely on that path. And then that came up and we really liked it. Yeah, that's awesome. That's an awesome story. So, so as we wind up thinking of, of uh, the digital forcers, there's often we're seeing in our analytics a young crowd that's listening to this I and mean, even people like outside of, of the space. But thinking of, um, you know, the unique value proposition of Collective Crunch, how would you summarize that? Like someone looking to engage with you and they're like, you know, I'm hearing, you know, the greenwashing term you've used, you know, there's all these different things. I, I feel overwhelmed. What, what would be that, that UVP that, that you would communicate to those yeah. folks to say, yeah, just give us a call because this is how, yeah. how we're different. Yeah. What, what, uh, what's your pitch? Yeah. Accurate and timely information about your forest at scale. That's Love it. it. Love it. So, Perfect. Awesome yeah, tagline there, UVP. Beautiful. Things, that's not going to be the trick, but if you're a big forestry player and you want to know what's going on, you want to track your forests, in an automated fashion, you want to know exactly and scientifically proven, you know, how accurate it is and so forth. That's us. Awesome. For sure. So on that note, what's the best way to get a hold of the role for you? LinkedIn, um, Facebook, email, website, what's the best direct way to get a hold of you? I'm on LinkedIn. Um, the email address, maybe we can put this somewhere here. Um, on, on LinkedIn certainly works. Um, my email is rs at collectivecrunch.com. Uh, we have an info at collectivecrunch.com. We monitor these channels very diligently. Um, yeah, th those are the, the key channels. Of, for, for awesome. So rs at collectivecrunch.com. I always like to say it because then people don't have to Absolutely. look you. it up. Yeah, and, and you've been great. You know, I reached out and you're very quick to respond. Uh, initially, I was like, this must just be like the generic inbox. I won't hear from Rolf. And you're like, hey, it's Rolf. I'm like, oh, awesome. <laughs> that worked out well. So, hey, thanks so much for joining the Digital Forester podcast. I loved it. I, amazing time learning about uh, Collective Crunch, the Linda product suite or Linda Solutions, if that's the right way. And and I'm still disappointed. It's not this cute, cuddly cat, but happy <laughs> to hear that it's a, an actual person. And, and there you go. But thanks so much for joining us. And, and I hope you enjoyed the conversation as well. And, you know, best of luck. And I'm hoping to maybe connect in person one of these days and exchange more ideas together. Connecting in person would be awesome. Thank you very much for having me. I think you're doing a fantastic job with, with, the, with the podcast. Awesome. Thanks, Ralph. We'll talk soon.